listening to episode 66 of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. I'm Josh Havens. And I'm Chris Lamberth. And we're on a journey to learn what it means to live a lifestyle of discipleship. We're glad you're joining us and hope that as you set aside this time for God, that he would help you grow today in the everyday moments of life. Today, we're talking with A.J. Sherrill. AJ has more than 20 years of experience as a pastor, including the role of lead pastor at Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's also an adjunct professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, where he teaches popular courses on transformational preaching and the Enneagram. And he leads Enneagram workshops across the country. His book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation, is a great introduction for those who want to know more about the Enneagram and how it can be used as a tool for creating a lifestyle of discipleship. The Enneagram has become a popular tool and topic of discussion over the last few years. Everyone seems to be taking online tests to discover their type and comparing their results with friends, family, and coworkers. But the Enneagram is more than just a personality test that shows us our quirks and preferences. It is a tool that can help us, as disciples, draw closer to God. As A.J. Sherrill talks about in this episode, the Enneagram isn't a Christian tool, but it is a human tool that can be used to help us discover our true identities by revealing to us the masks we use to hide from the world. It can also help us create practices that uh, help us grow more deeply in our walk with Christ. The Enneagram is not a mystical or all-powerful tool, but it can if we use it well, help us gain a deeper awareness of our motivations and insecurities that keep us from seeing who God is calling us to be. So, as someone striving to create a lifestyle of discipleship, I would like to invite you to consider the Enneagram as a tool that the Holy Spirit can use as he does his work of forming you into the image of Christ. AJ, welcome to the podcast. Hey, so good to be with you. Yeah, really great to connect with you and uh, talk about your new book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. This has been uh, a really great book to read. I'm a big fan of The Enneagram. We've talked with several guests um, on the podcast about The Enneagram before. And so, honestly, when I picked up your book, I expected it to be um, not the same, but to do kind of the same things that everybody else does. But I got to say, it was really nice to see you take a very different approach in that the Enneagram is forms like the core to this book, but it's really not the main, uh, I don't know what you'd say. It's really not the main subject. Really, it is spiritual formation and the Enneagram just becomes uh, the tool to help us walk through this. And so you cover like um, like what I think is just like a basic discipleship plan for anybody to learn how to how to follow Jesus um, more carefully. Um, with that being said, uh, how did you first get introduced to the Enneagram and where did this uh, this journey for you all begin? Yeah, so I'd say it's probably been eight or nine years. I was studying uh, in the home of Father Richard Rohr. Um, for my doctorate program, and he started riffing on the Enneagram, and I hadn't heard, it that, heard of it at that point, and I was like most people, wait, did he just say pentagram? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, hey, hey, talk a little bit more about the Enneagram. I, I want to hear what you have to say about that. So probably for, I don't know, two to three hours, he just started waxing eloquently on this theory. And, you know, I'd done the disc, I'd done Strength Finders, I'd done um, Myers-Briggs, love all those profiles, 
Um, but what I liked about the Enneagram was that it got under the thing, under the thing, under the thing. And it wasn't just be about behavioral theory, but really about motivational theory and what sort of makes like the why behind all of our behavior. What is inducing this sort of uh, action in my life or this sort of uh, habit or why do I veer this direction? What's under that? So, um, so yeah, I got into it uh, through Richard and then uh, years ago before the road back to you came out, I studied with Suzanne Stabile uh, and Ian Cron. Ian was hosting a workshop in Greenwich, Connecticut that I used to live in Manhattan. And so I went over to hear them talk a little bit about this. And I said to Susan or Suzanne at the break, I said, Hey, listen, who, who's doing formation work on this? And at the time she said, nobody that I know of is doing any work on this when it comes to Christian formation. And what was important for me is that we get the Enneagram right. And what I mean by that is that the Enneagram is at best a means and not an end. Mm -hmm. A lot of the ways in which I think we're getting into all sorts of mischief is using the Enneagram as an end. In other words, that the goal of the Enneagram is to know your number. Um, that is only scratching the surface. And that's when we start to put people in corners. We put ourselves in a corner. We totalize others because we just want to know people's number. And um, the spiritual uh, sort of ninja warrior, uh, uh, Adele Calhoun, said to me in passing one time that if you don't work your number, then you're wasting your time. Mm -hmm. And that's always like stuck with me is this reality that once you begin to understand your type, if you don't work that and understand how to utilize that toward health, toward Christ likeness, toward spiritual practices, rules of life, um, then it can just turn into a parlor trick and it's a big gigantic waste of time. And so as a pastor, I've always been interested in discipleship. And so what does it mean to use the Enneagram to help us name things, name some things? And then what does it mean to move beyond those things into practices that can really transform our lives? Yeah, see, in, in the Enneagram, like you, you were saying, does something that we really like is it gets to that why question um, that, that's so much deeper. And um, it's not that those other personality exams aren't helpful in their in their own way. I mean, they, they do help reveal something about us, but this takes it to um, a, a different level. What is the role of that self-discovery in our spiritual formation? And why is that such an important thing for us to get right as disciples? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, let's talk on the personality standpoint. You can't change what you don't name. You know, I mean, from very early in the garden narrative that we have from Genesis, naming reality is really important to God in order to differentiate. So like when Adam begins to name animals, he realizes he's not that animal. Well, it's the same thing, I think, with our personality. When we can begin to name some of our motives, some of our behaviors, it, it reminds us that, oh, that is happening, but that's not who I am in my essence. So once we begin to understand that, we can move into some practices that can help shape that. But even before that, um, our, our core identity or our root identity and our core personality are not necessarily the same thing. I mean, there's certainly some overlap. I'm imagining a Venn diagram here. Um, but your belovedness and your identity is who you are at the essence of how God made you to exist. Your personality, all it is, is a strategy. And I think sometimes we think our personality is our identity. In other words, I am an eight or I am a six and that's all I'll ever be, Right. First of all, you have all the types in you in your personality, but your personality is just a strategy. It's a strategy that we utilize and learn over the course of life in order to cope and thrive in a beautiful and broken world. 
And so I think it's really important for us to sort of understand our personalities, but to demystify them as if like this number is all that we are because we have all the types in us. Uh, we're a beloved child of God in our identity. And so all that stuff is really important when it comes to formation. And enough, I think if you, if you get the beloved part wrong, if you miss that, if you omit that, then you end up searching your whole life to try to become someone when God says, I've already made you someone. So beginning with that step, I think is really important and is often overlooked. One of the things that we really struggle with in our identity at times is separating who we are from what we do. Um, I mean, like, personally, I, I, I've come out of a, a huge battle with legalism growing up. Um, and so who I am as a Christian is often so wrapped up in the way that I live the Christian life. And the past seven years now have been a journey of learning to understand my identity in terms of grace and belovedness and who I am as a son of God. Uh, how, can we, how can we work to separate the doing from the being like that when we struggle with conflating those two? Yeah. I mean, Henri Nouwen has been the greatest influence in my life when it comes to that. I mean, he, he sets up these three great questions. I think for, 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 if that's a struggle that you're having as a listener right now, where that separation from doing and being gets conflated and you just want to launch into achievement identity very quickly, or you don't know, really it's hard to live from your centeredness of your belovedness. Um, there's three questions he's always posing that I think are really helpful first thing in the morning. And the, they're really myths. And the myths are that I, I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what others say about me. Most of us struggle with at least one of those, if not all of those, that I am what I have. In other words, resume building, wealth building, all that stuff. Uh, I am what I do. So, you know, vocation, meritocracy, and I am what others say about me. It is so easy to see ourselves through the eyes of others and to imagine that's all that we are. Um, and that's a really painful place to be as I, I identify as an Enneagram three. So, you know, the contemplative tradition has become really important for me um, because what it says, the first thing in the morning that is central to reclaiming my identity before I move out into the day is that I need to be with God and not just read about God, not just pray to God. Uh, all those things are really good, but that the first part of my day has to be about slowing down and receiving who I already am in Christ and realizing that in the silence and in the solitude, God reminds me that I don't have to achieve or earn anything and that God says that I'm already beloved. And so I don't have to try to manipulate others to believe that about me. Um, and that's a freer place, not just for me, but for my relationships that I'm in. Yeah. Um, so you, you use a story at the beginning of the book to kind of illustrate some of this stuff and, and you do it from Zoolander. Um, I often think of um, a similar scene from that uh, movie uh, Anger Management with Adam Sandler and Jack Nicholson when uh, he's he's in anger management and um, Jack Nicholson keeps asking him, like, who are you? And he's like, well, you know, I'm a pretty good guy or, you know, it's like, no, no, no. I don't want to know about like, and, you know. He, it ends that scene ends with him like kind of like getting angry and blowing up because he can't say um, the, the right thing. <laughs> so we struggle with I struggle with this so much. And um, again, this idea that the per like we we conflate the personality so much for our identity. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on how our personalities then are a strategy or a coping mechanism um, that really aren't our true identities or who we truly are? 
Um, where did our personalities come from then, then if they are a strategy or coping mechanism? Yeah, so I love the metaphor of a tree. So if you imagine that root system, um, that is where we soak in really the essence of who we are and how our life began, that we began as a kind of root system uh, when we were created. And from there, you develop a kind of personality. I, I think, you know, there's been a lot of debate. Well, is personality, is it nurture or nature? And I think the answer to that is yes. Uh, we have a specific, you know, genetic coding that I think predisposes us to a kind of personality profile to have several options on the table. I think when you're born in terms of the Enneagram, introverted, extroverted, all those other categories that we can overlay on that as well. And I think what happens through the course of life by about the time you're age 20, you're at probably the purest form of your personality in a Western context in the 21st century. You have enough life experience, you have enough wins, you have enough losses to sort of not just have your genetic coding, but now you have these experiences that have shaped you. And they've shaped you in a way that you've had to protect yourself at times. And they've shaped you in a way that you've promoted yourself at times, right? So you've stepped out in some cases and shrunk back in others in such a way that has worked on you. And it's sort of shaped how you're going to show up through the course of your life because those are strategies based on what you have already gone through in your existence. So, you know, there's a reason why some people end up more confident than others uh, because of the way in which uh, their, their child rearing went down, the way in which they were either raised in a healthy or unhealthy environment, whether they were praised or whether they were demeaned. All of these things shape us by the time we're 20. And so personality is an artifact of both your genetic coding and the experiences that you've had. And so from there, we react to life based on how we're going to cope and thrive in the world. Um, and so there are just certain scenarios you avoid because in the past they were painful. And there are certain areas that you move toward because you've navigated those sorts of dynamics before and have confidence to do so. So that's where a lot of your personality comes out and you begin to have some sort of strategies in navigating the world. So using the Enneagram to identify or type some of these uh, general personality um, habits or characteristics help us get an idea for who or, or how we have come about with these coping mechanisms. They help us identify some of the things that we are doing. Um, one of the things that you point out in the book, though, is that the Enneagram is not a Christian tool. It's a human tool. Um, so let's just go ahead and get this question then out of the way. Um, <laughs> how can we use a human tool, not a Christian tool, in order to uh, grow in more, uh, to be more like Christ? Yeah, I mean, the same way you would view money. Like, how could you use money to help renew the world with God? Well, money is a neutral tool. You can use it for all sorts of nefarious activity. You can also use it for a lot of redemptive activity. I like to say it's a human tool because there's a lot of um, people on a, in a certain branch of Christianity that think the Enneagram is, you know, sort of conflated with New Ageism or something like that. Um, I've just never come across that. I, I don't understand how one could use the Enneagram to sort of worship Satan or the stars or something. That doesn't that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm sure maybe you could. Um, <laughs> it's because it's a geometric it, shape. That's why. <laughs> I, I think that has a lot to do with it. When I talk to a lot of these people, they don't know that these are actually arrows. They think it's like some sort of hidden mystical symbol. And it's like, those are arrows. They each have an arrow to go in security and stress, and it just forms a shape. That's all it is. Let's demystify that. Um, and so I, I like to say it's a human tool because um, the idea is you don't need the Enneagram to grow spiritually. Mm -hmm. You know, you, we need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. We don't need the Enneagram. That is just simply a tool. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, fine, let it go. The Enneagram is not... <laughs> 
Jesus. For me, it was helpful because it started to name things that I just prefer shove under the rug and pretend they don't exist. Um, they started naming my motivations. I'll never forget when I asked Father Roar, I said, hey, how do I know my Enneatype? I took the test and he said, well, he said, you'll know it because it'll give you the greatest amount of humiliation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. And it's like, oh yeah, I can't wait to get into that. <laughs> but it's, it's true. You start to, um, you start to get into this stuff and you realize, oh, that explains my strategies. And, you know, what's fascinating is that two people can manifest the same behavior, but for different reasons. You know, it's that glacier. You can see what's on top of the surface in someone's life, but you have no idea what's underneath. It's one of the reasons we never type other people because you never know what's actually under the surface for them guiding their motivations. And so it's, it's improper and at best thing can be wounding to type other people because we don't know what's driving. We can see their behavior, but we don't know why mm -hmm. of their behavior. Um, so for me, it's an important tool of discipleship because for a lot of Christians, what we want to do is circle what we're good at and ignore the rest. And that's, you know, to use Dallas Willard terms, that's a sin of omission um, where we just like to neglect the things that we find painful or disturbing and only sort of emphasize the things that we like. And we call that following Jesus. And, and that leads to a sort of like half-baked Christianity over the course of time. So the Enneagram just helps point to things of like, hey, AJ, don't, don't forget about that. Don't shove that under the rug. You need to deal with that wound. You need to deal with that secret pride. You need to deal with that thing over there that's driving the way in which you're showing up in life, which isn't help, helpful for you or the world. So these are really important things for me that the Enneagram, again, has served as a means and not an end to say, okay, now that you can name that, bring that into the light of Christ. And here are some practices that are going to help you grow. Yeah, that's good. I think one of the things that we really miss and one of the reasons we're so afraid of bringing stuff into the light is because we feel like it's so wrapped up on our identity. Yes. And if we get the belovedness thing right and we recognize yes. the grace that God has for us, yes. it is yes. not painful at all to bring these things out. Because it means this. It means that your identity is no longer up for negotiation. Yeah. That it is settled in Christ. And so you don't have to fear. We have the proper image of God too, the one who calls us beloved before we do anything. Why would this God now give us scorpions? Or mm -hmm. if we ask for bread, give us a stone. This is a God that says, I love you, that I love you, that I love you. And do not know that I'm aware of all your motives anyway. So you can bring them to me and together we can work on them to see you become more like my son and to see you flourish in the world. Yeah. It can be painful though when you're moving from when you're seeing your person, I mean, your personality is your uh, primary center of identity into um, trying to recognize that belovedness. So I'm a type mm -hmm. one. And so I can, I, I identify with that pain a lot because I'm naturally inclined to try and, uh, you know, fix myself through self-help. And so I, I'm I, like personality just ends up being my, my go-to. Um, and then the problem is, is I realize that that's, that's not correct. So then I try to double down <laughs> on doing that and very do thing, thing that I'm problem. not supposed to do. And, uh, so yeah, it can be a, uh, it can be a great problem. I love though, that, that point about the Enneagram kind of showing our weaknesses. We have a friend who, um, when we did the strengths finder, uh, <laughs> he said, yeah, I would be more interested in a weakness finder, uh, test, but that's, that's really, I guess what the Enneagram does is it helps us find, um, our, our deepest weaknesses. I never really thought about it from that perspective before. Uh, so that's kind of fun. And, and also to anybody who might think that the Enneagram 
isn't a worthwhile tool because it's a human tool. Um, yeah, it's thousands of years old, but again, there's not too many Christians who would ignore like, like Myers-Briggs, iDisc, StrengthsFinders. Those are just as equal human tools that uh, we can use. They're just human tools of a uh, more modern uh, generation. And so um, anyway, I, I think that's reassuring, <laughs> at least to me, to, to look at such an ancient tool like this that we can uh, that we can draw so much wisdom from. And because we also have some, you know, hesitancy when we look at things that are really, really old. And they seem all well, new and agey. He, <laughs> and here's one of the gifts of it being a human tool. Um, you know, I think it can lead us. There's a whole chapter in there dedicated to evangelism. It helps us. The Enneagram has become common language in a lot of environments. And uh, it's so interesting. It's it's like it's it's feasible and and um, winsome. It's not offensive to talk about your weaknesses through the lens of the Enneagram. But, you know, if you bring up, you know, sin language at the water cooler at work or in your neighborhood or whatever, that can be sort of a conversation stopper because there's all sorts of assumptions that are under that. But it's interesting to me how people are willing to talk about their brokenness and their pain points through the lens of the Enneagram. So for me, it can serve into a real bridge bridge builder of, you know, if you can get that far with someone to admit, like, I'm not God, my life is not perfect. I need, I need salvation. I I mean, no one, no one would say that in our terms, but I need something greater. I need transcendence, something beyond myself to heal that, which is within me, to heal my childhood, to heal whatever. Um, I think it can serve as a great conversation opener. That's not offensive. It's a bridge builder. And from there, I think there are tons of opportunities to get really clear about the solution that we have in the triune God. Yeah. you know, your evangelism chapter did blow me away uh, because of that. I was I was wondering how you were, uh, you know, going to connect that. I, I wonder if we might could also, if I could just ask you then how the Enneagram helps us with each one of our five steps, because y- you cover them uh, to some degree in your book. And I'm curious to, to just get your answer. We've talked about identity. So let's move on to uh, um, the second one, practice the basics and spiritual disciplines. Um how does the Enneagram help us with knowing how to uh, structure our life and rhythm around spiritual disciplines as we walk with Christ? Yeah, so what each what the second part of it deals with the sort of spiritual formation side of the Enneagram. So what I try to do is now that you have named your type, you sort of understand your motivation tendencies, uh, both good and bad. You can begin to now um, think about practices that both uh, correspond and those that uh, might seem challenging for you. I give them the word upstream and downstream practices. So we all have downstream practices based on our personality that come easier for us. So let me back up for a second. I think one of the critiques I have for the local church, and by the local church, I mean me as a local pastor, is we say things like this, hey, read your Bible, come to church, give some money, and in 30 years, you will be changed. And I think most people wake up 30 years later not feeling changed, just feeling older. And one of the suspicions that I had when I got into this work was, are there ways in which we need to be thinking about spiritual practices and spiritual formation that actually honor the uniqueness of our personality rather than batching spiritual formation? As if you if you just do these three things, you're good. Um, there are things that I love to do that come easy for me as a three that don't come easy for my wife as a five, right? And maybe God has made us in our sort of personalities and our uniqueness to 
connect with the life of the spirit differently. Same God, but different ways. Like some people love nature. Some people love music. Some people love Bible reading. And some people love uh, Lexio Divina Bible reading. Others love inductive, inductive method Bible reading. Others love a 365-day plan Bible reading, right? So there's not like just one way to read the Bible. There's not like just one way to pray. And that's something that my uh, Western Protestant upbringing did not invite me into some of the ancient traditions of different ways of reading the Bible. Um, I'm not saying that that truth competes. What I'm saying is that there are different modes in which we can read scripture from different angles for different reasons in our formation. So every single type I give two practices. One is called downstream. So imagine you're in a lazy river. That's a practice that's going to come easy for you. You're just going to float downstream on it. So whatever your type is, there's a certain practice for you that just gravitates to the way, the grain in which you are, you are alive and that you exist. And then there's another type practice called an upstream. And that's the practice that you need to pay attention to because you're going to have to swim upstream to do it. It's going to feel unnatural. You're not going to love it. It's not going to just jump out to you. You just prefer to avoid it. But nevertheless, when you can show up with God on a rhythm and practice that, then there are ways in which God can shape your personality into greater wholeness. So there are certain things as a three, as I mentioned, contemplative spirituality. I don't want to just sit with God in the morning. I want to achieve something. I want to read the Bible. I want to parse the, I want to parse the Greek, you know, but God is inviting me to just be still. I don't have to perform. I don't have to achieve. I don't have to create. I just get to be. And as a three, that's like the hardest thing for me to do. Um, so that's a little bit about the formation side for each type of how um, practices uh, can be really helpful. There's also a little section in there on the church calendar that this is the annual cycle of the life and ministry of Jesus throughout the year. What are times of the year that if you're a six or you're a four or you're a two, that you should make sure you're really dialed into because God has something for you and your personality in that season of the life and ministry of Jesus? Yeah, that definitely was something I shared with Josh that I found. Yeah, we enjoyed talking about that. Yeah, very unique. I've never I've never read a book that's actually connected spiritual practices, um, especially for personality, but to those uh, uh, liturgical uh, to the church calendar. Um, you know, in, in our tradition, the church calendar is barely celebrated. You know, we've been getting you more. Might Obviously, do Advent you get, if you do. Yeah, yeah. Anything. I mean, you get Easter, but then yeah, maybe Advent and. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I think this is a great way for people who maybe um, are interested in that and haven't yet had a chance to explore it. Um, doing it from the lens of spiritual formation, I think, is a, a really great way of maybe uh, coming into that for the first time if you haven't experienced that before. Um, so uh, our, our step number three is to walk with someone because uh, we're created for community. How can the Enneagram and understanding ourselves um, help us better walk with others? So good. I love that that's one of your values. So the Enneagram is too often used as an individualistic tool. It's about me. Let me find my type. Let me go in my corner and figure me out. And I think that's such a, a misnomer. So it means nine diagram. And there are some teachers that will actually say that the Enneagram are the nine faces of God or the nine faces of the soul. And what I love about that is that it means that together we present the image of God better than we can do alone in our individualism. So like the idea isn't, well, I'm a two. I wish I was a seven. If only I could be a seven. It's like, no, 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 no. Like for you to be a healthy two, 
gives us an angle into the mystery of who our God is. Mm. And when you show up with a healthy six and a healthy eight and a healthy four, this is the meaning of the church. We can present God better to the world when we're together than we can when we're apart. It doesn't mean individually you can't present an angle of God into the world. It just meant, it means that we were designed for community. And if we as a people are going to present God's image um, as full as we can, then we need to be part of the community of faith. We need to be part of the local body of believers mm-hmm. um, because we have a better shot at bearing witness to the, the beauty of this God together than we do apart. Yeah. And I love what you said earlier too about, um, you know, if we understand the Enneagram, we, we can understand that the same event is going to affect us very differently. And so Josh and I have found this to be true in our lives. Uh, he identifies as a four. And so we we often come to the exact same uh, agree or the same thought on an issue or we'll get angry. Something will make us angry or we'll be motivated by something, but it's often for very, very different reasons. Yeah. And we were just talking about this the other day, yeah. actually something was, was bothering us and, and it was just like, wow, that, yeah, I'm not bothered by it at all for that reason, but it's for this reason over here. And so, um, I think knowing that stuff, again, I, I love that point. It's we should be careful not to type others. But if you are in a relationship with with someone else and you know you're working through your types and how that's being expressed in your life, I think it does give you common language um, so that you can talk about what you're struggling with and 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 then maybe how that person needs uh, encouragement maybe more than another. Like a, like um uh, Josh is a four like I I go to the gym, I can release all my frustrations and anger and tension, you know, on the weights and I could just, you know, do it. Does not work that way for me. Jo- like, yeah, it doesn't I've, work that way for me. I've Josh. described it as brushing my teeth. It's just another thing that I've got to do. <laughs> so I don't know if that's an Enneagram thing, but uh, uh, maybe, maybe not. But it's, I think it's an example of how these things play play themselves out in our lives. And so as we walk with each other and we better understand one another, we're able to, uh, to meet each other's needs um, in a way that's specific for each of us. Well, another thing that I like, we, in the, the conversation that we had with Adele last year, <laughs> yeah. um, she, she said, don't try to type yourself by yourself. You need to avoid that. Mm. If, if the Enneagram really is about understanding our wounds, how we process things, how we cope, um, there's going to be a lot of blind spots. And so we have to rely on, on others around us, not, not to have them give us our type. Yeah. They're not but, defining us, but we work together on this because they see part of me that I don't. And I see part of me that they don't. And <laughs> like, and I've talked about it several times on the podcast, but that one time when we were talking about being and doing and, and Mary and Martha, Oh yeah. And I was convinced <laughs> I was a Mary. <laughs> Until he told me, no, you're a Martha. And I was like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? I do this, 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 and this. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I heard it that time. I got it. <laughs> but it was very, well, kind, it was helpful in the long run. <laughs> it's kind of like what Ed, Edwin Freeman talks about, um, differentiation. And I love that term. It, it, what happens, like, for any of your listeners, if, if you are in a leadership context or you're on a team, um, what, what happens is that we assume that our way of doing life in this world, what motivates us, what we value over time, we assume that is what is normative for the world. And so when other people show up and they do things different than us, then what's wrong with them, right? Because I've become, I I see life through my, my eyes only that what I am about and how I get life done on my terms is what should be normal and standard for everybody. What the Enneagram helped me do in community, especially as a pastor of a church 
is it helped me learn to value my staff in the way in which they too are different than I am, but that together we actually present a much more holistic plan of following Jesus than I can come up with alone. So it's really helped me to value my blind spots in community, to value the way in which others go about getting things done. I'll give you an example. My first time, I used to lead a large staff in Grand Rapids, and I'm like a storyboard guy. Let's get out the whiteboard. Let's mm-hmm. draw it up. External processor. And my first day, I was doing this with the team, and they were just looking at me like I, you know, deer in the headlights. And I, I came home <laughs> that night, and I said to my wife, I said, I don't think this is going very well. Maybe we didn't hear God. Maybe we heard God wrong on this move. And, you know, a week later, I start getting all of these insights on email, sidebar conversations. And I realized, oh, my goodness, I'm surrounded by a bunch of Enneagram 5s and nines and ones, and they need time to process and to write things out. And their ideas are probably going to be better than mine in the moment. They're going to go away and really think about these things. And it was really helpful for me to say, okay, people need agendas before the meeting. They don't want to just, many people don't want to just like throw things on a board in the moment and they need time after the meeting to process and then check back in. And so it's helped me become a better leader because I've realized that what's normal for me is not normal for everybody and that I, I need to honor the way they are. And that at the same time, they, they need to honor the way I am as well. And so the way in which that ebbs and flows is really helpful uh, for community, for leadership, all of these things. Yeah, it's great. Great point. Um, our step number four is to serve with purpose because we believe as an extension of who God has called us to be, he has given us um, gifts and abilities, talents that we can serve others with. And we want to do that um, with as much purpose as we can. Uh, how does the Enneagram understanding ourselves help us better serve others? Uh, I mean, f- for what I just said, a lot yeah. of that is learning <laughs> differentiation. You know what I mean? Learning to run in the lane that God has really made you well to run in, um, but to also make space for others who uh, not just have different gifts, but different personalities. Um, you know, you just get a much more robust cocktail of whatever you're creating if it's not just you and if you're surrounded by people that don't just remind you of you. Um so, I mean, that's what comes to mind when I think about serving with others in that dynamic. I will say, too, people ask me, um, hey, is there, like, thinking about, like, a marriage, is there a certain type I should marry? <laughs> and it's, it, it's no. Uh, the, the key to a good marriage, a good partnership is, uh, is humility and humility and humility and humility. That if, if you're humble every single type coming together with other types makes something beautiful and unique in the world. Uh, and if you're not humble, even if you are the same type, it's going to be a train wreck. (laughs) And so I think serving the world together, it is that sense of like having humility to invite others to serve alongside you and to have a vision for the world that's greater than what you can pull off alone. Yeah. I think for me, the struggle sometimes is I can be unaware of my own tendencies, kind of like you're talking about. And I tend to think then that serving others, like let's say I'm going to go out and uh, feed the homeless or, or something like that. I tend to think that serving others then looks like, okay, well, I need to do the things that a four does to make them feel loved and served. And yes. if, I'm, if I'm trying to love someone else in the way that I'm going to, to most feel loved myself as a four, I mean, that's one of my struggles. Um it's they're not going to receive that in the same way. And so serving them may mean doing something that is totally not the way that I would do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Or the G- yes. Yeah. Um, 
That's good. We already talked about five. So go back to the previous point in the conversation and listen to that. <laughs> we won't repeat it in here. <laughs> but I do love the emphasis on um, this tool becomes a a means of communicating with others. And so it's not necessarily that there has to be some grand uh, insight that you have to type somebody so that you can speak into them. I, I think maybe that's what most people would think. I guess I think of that a little bit when I think of how would the Enneagram help me evangelize. Um, but it more becomes just a new way of talking with others um, and, and a, a doorway that many people are open to when they won't be open to uh, just talking about Jesus or the faith in general, because those are just topics that aren't, you know, and we in America are very ignorant on, you know, these biblical topics now, like 50 years ago. Sure. That was, that was, common language. That was fine. Now the Enneagram is, uh, can become a great, great open door for that. Um, I am curious in the book, you, in, in, you talk about it. You don't point out all of the, the intricacies that you can do with the Enneagram, like the triads and the, um, you know, you know, you integrate and you disintegrate and all the, the extra theory. Why did you choose to not talk about that stuff in here? Uh, yeah, I'm a pastor. I don't care about that stuff. <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of people that do that are so much more competent than I am. So my goal wasn't to become an expert on the Enneagram. My goal is to become like, like Jesus. Like that's, that's what I sort of orient toward. And I'm not saying those are necessarily competing things, but I'm more interested on the spiritual formation discipleship side than I am following the very long and dark rabbit hole of the Enneagram with subtypes and wings and, security and stress, like all that stuff I find very interesting. It's just not where I want, wanted to put all my time. Yeah. Um, so like, again, like, like when I lead workshops on this, uh, around the world, my hope is that we spend the first hour, hour and a half in typology so that we can be get beyond that into other things, into creating rules of life and rhythms and disciplines and understandings of formation, because, um, you know, you can spend a lot of time in all of these different intricacies of the Enneagram, but the goal for me isn't the Enneagram. The yeah. goal for me is Jesus. And so I want to get people beyond the Enneagram to where it's sort of like that, those Google glasses, it's giving you information mm -hmm. about life, but it's not becoming your life. It just gives you information so that you can navigate the world you live in, um, in a way that's really helpful. Um, and so that, that, that's the reason why, I mean, Beatrice Chestnut would do circles around me. Uh, you know, Don Richard Riso, Helen Palmer. I mean, these are just heavyweights on Enneagram theory and I am in awe of their knowledge. Um, that's just not the focus and concentration of, um, of what I do. Yeah. And I don't ask that to criticize because again, I love your book for that reason. And many of the books uh, on the Enneagram dive much deeper into those things. But, and so I think you're right. Um, just for getting it like its basic purpose and then being able to jump beyond it, I think you, you, you smash the ball out of the park. And so um, like maybe if you're, if you're trying to become an Enneagram workshop leader or something like that, or you're going to incorporate that into your spiritual direction practice, maybe more, maybe, maybe those are the kind of the, the people yes. in the books that you should read a little bit more uh, in, intently for that. Um, and, and you brought up rule of life. It's kind of the goal and in purpose of the book. You kind of ninja that in there. You don't see it uh, coming necessarily. You do a great job of leading towards it though. Um, what is a rule of life? And, uh, then I get, yeah, just kind of summarize how the Enneagram helps us develop that. Yeah. So it comes from this word regula in the Latin, which is essentially uh, a trellis. It's, it's a way of designing uh, 
a dead piece of wood in which the vine of life can grow. So a lot of people hear rule of life or discipline and think, oh, how wooden, how terrible, like that's hollow and shallow and religious. But, um, you know, if you don't have a trellis, then the life that you love, the life that you long for to grow within you uh, can grow out of control. I mean, we've seen even certain, you know, patterns in the, in the Christian world of, you know, communities that just didn't have a trellis to anchor them. And then at other times you see communities that all they have is a trellis. It's just a dead piece of wood. There's no life in it. So we actually need both in order to orient the life in a direction. So that's all a, a rule of life is a piece of wood that you commit to, that you give yourself in order for life to grow. So like there's spiritual practices that you set up the when, the where, the why, the how, and most importantly, it's the who, like the idea of all of your spiritual practices are not the practices themselves. They are simply means by which the spirit gets hold of our lives and blows us through to the next step that we have. And so, you know, what we have to do is show up and we need to create in our life. You know, Henri Nouwen said that discipline is the effort to create space yeah. for God to move. And so many of us live lives spontaneously as if, you know, we're going to become like Jesus accidentally. Well, here's the thing. No one has ever accidentally become like Jesus. <laughs> it's always a radical intent. So yeah. every morning, you better believe it, no matter what the weather is. I have my, my morning Bible readings, my prayer time, the creed that I say. I sit and I'm, I'm still and it orients me in my rocking chair to start my day, not because I'm religious, but because I so long for the presence of God to fill me as I, as I begin my day. And I have to continue to come back to that over and over. Why do I do this? I do this for the presence. I do this for the presence. This is about the presence. So I think sometimes when we lose track of the why and the who, everything becomes about what and when we can sort of get off a little bit, but um, the what and when helps us to move toward the why all the time. So uh, I would encourage you uh, as a listener, if you don't have a way, a strategy in which you are going to show up and be in the presence of the living God, whether that's through nature, whether that's through scripture, whether that's through prayer, whatever that could be for you, service, justice, whatever that is, um, it's not going to happen accidentally. And your life will probably drift down the current of uh, hurry and of your calendar and of all the demands on your day. And you'll realize like it's all filled up, you know? And I long to be more like Jesus, and it's just not going to happen without intention. Great. Well said. Very well said. Uh, last question. What is your biggest pet peeve in the way the church today is doing uh, discipleship or misconceptions surrounding that? I mean, I could default and say the the, the cliche thing, like we do too many programs. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not sure people know how to wed the contemplative and charismatic traditions together. Ooh. Right. So, so how do we, how do we help people um, with both a desire for the external presence of God, the manifestations of the spirit, the renewal that we want to see in our world? How do we marry that at the same time with the ministry of Mary, the ministry of being at the feet of Jesus and being still um, like right now, it seems like we have a lot of factions, like you're either all about justice and Jesus is sort of optional or you're all about Jesus, which means you read your Bible, but justice isn't necessarily a part of your rhythm, right? So like, I, I think we're sort of living these discipleship lives that are really categorical, where we feel like we have to choose between Jesus and justice, or we feel like we have to choose between the charismatic and the contemplative, these sorts of things, um, which I think are a lie. Like, 
the great Christian tradition tells us that God is doing something so beautifully diverse in the world through so many different cultures. Um, and I'm interested to learn in how do we pull in the best of those things within our church contexts uh, to see the manifold wisdom of God on display. Wow, that was a phenomenal answer. And we're going to have to talk about that on another podcast because, yeah, that's great. That's a really, really great point. Um, and as, as people who are in a Pentecostal uh, tradition, um, that is something that we are actively wrestling with. So uh, thank you for that, uh, uh, that insight. Um, where can people go to get a copy of the book and to follow your work? Yeah, I mean, if you go to Amazon, you can find yeah. it there. It's also wherever books are sold. Um, AJSherrill.org. Uh, if you're interested in a workshop or want to keep up with what's going on there, I've also I got another book coming out next year on what I just said on contemplative spirituality and neurology and how our brains uh, respond in prayer and um, what's happening when we pray and how to actually move toward a greater life with God uh, and being in prayer. So. Um, yeah, it's a little project I'm working on now that I'm really excited about. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Well, yeah. AJ, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Everybody needs to go out and get a copy of this book. Um, if you're not interested in the Enneagram, go get it because again, it's mostly about spiritual formation and the Enneagram just becomes a tool. If you want to learn more about the Enneagram, this is a great place to start. So go check it out. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. How can you create a lifestyle of discipleship? Most Christians think discipleship is a program or a few practices thrown in at the beginning or end of the day. But we want to help you create a lifestyle where walking with Jesus throughout the day is not only possible, but natural. And we have a tool that's going to help you do just that. It's called the Daily Growth Journal. It's a guided journal that's going to help you become secure in your identity with God and authentically walk with Him in your daily life. Growing daily in your walk with Christ is possible if you cultivate a lifestyle of discipleship. And the Daily Growth Journal will help you do just that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. To find out more about AJ's work, check out ajsherrill.org. If you like what you've heard this week, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast player you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to stay up to date on everything happening at Daily Growth Discipleship, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.